Hello, and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, PR consultant and freelance writer, tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours owner and host of this podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. For this week's episode, I met with Nadir Bouhmouche, the filmmaker behind the documentary Amusu. In the film, Nadir takes a collaborative approach to telling the story of the villagers of Imadir, peacefully protesting against Africa's largest silver mine, located in the region, that led to water scarcity in their oasis and their right to land. Beautifully shot, the film includes images of the oasis when water was scarce and its impact on agriculture. He stepped inside homes to interview local residents and captured video of daily village life. I first learned about Amusu as it premiered at the 2019 Toronto Hot Dog Festival, the largest documentary film festival in North America. I happened to catch the film when it made its Marrakesh premiere this autumn. Following the release, I met with Nadir to chat about the protests that have been dubbed the Movement on Road 96 and his collaborative approach to telling the tale, but also the peaceful approach the locals took to bring about change when they'd had enough. I don't want to spoil the ending of the film, but given the number of protests happening in the world today, I found my discussion with Nadir to be incredibly timely. So let's listen in as Nadir talks about sharing the tale of the village that, while the struggle is not over, succeeded in shutting down one of the water pipelines, thus bringing some life back to the oasis in southern Morocco. And where did you study film? Uh, in San Diego. Wonderful. So you're a filmmaker, you're based in Marrakesh, and you have four films already to your credit. And you tend to work on indigenous rights and environmental issues. Is that correct? That's correct. And where did that motivation come from? Oh, uh, I... I link it to many things in in, in, in my life. Um, the initial point was my probably my mother because she would, would uh, always take us. We, we grew up kind of on a farm. We'd go every weekend to a farm, so I was always very aware of land and uh, you know I could tell what kind of trees were. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people from my generation or from younger generations, you tell them what does an olive tree look like. They mm-hmm. might not even know what it looks yeah. like or what a potato plant looks like. Mm-hmm. So just being uh, attuned to these kind of things was something from my from my childhood, I guess. Um, and I was I've always been interested by uh, the environment. But I guess the triggering moment in my adult life was probably when I uh, went to visit the Gishludea, um uh, protest camp in Rabat, and these were these are a tribe that, that had their land expropriated by by the state by a real estate com- company, and so um, that's what that was the triggering moment for me where I switched. I was working on I was working on social movements before, but that was a triggering moment for me to to switch towards uh, land rights or environmental rights mm-hmm. um, and this is of course we talk about land rights and environmental rights automatically we, we find ourselves talking about indigenous rights uh, mm-hmm. from a cultural perspective mm-hmm. 
And your latest film, Musu, made its premiere during the Fetch Cinema here in Marrakesh. Um, and I initially heard about the film when um, because it was screened at the Toronto Hot Dogs Festival in April 2019. Can you just tell listeners about Amusu, where the village of Imadir is located, um, and what caused the movement, Road 96, as it's referred to? Uh, Imadir is located between Wurzazet and uh, Rashidia, almost exactly half point. So, uh, for those who don't know where Wurzazet and Rashidia are, it's uh, the south- southeastern Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a semi-arid region that's uh, known for its oases uh, and and, um, of course, when we talk about oases, we're talking about uh, uh, human-created uh, ecological niches that have, that were created for that were created centuries uh, ago by bringing water through khatarat um, systems or by building these oasis systems uh, next to um, uh, rivers or mm-hmm. next to essential water points. Um, these are very fragile uh, ecological niches in a world uh, where climate change is starting to affect even the most uh, fertile, most uh, lush uh, regions in the world. So when we talk about climate change, plus we have the biggest silver mine in Africa, and to go back to the movement on Road 96, uh, these are, this is a community of uh, peasants um, that survives on subsistence agriculture from from the, their oasis, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I would say a combination of climate change plus um, the biggest silver mine in Africa uh, pumping uh, tons and tons of water from uh, from their aquifers. This led to des- the desertification of their oasis, and so and. So this is the first factor. Then there's pollution, cyanide. Uh, anyone who is aware of yes. mining knows cyanide kind of comes along with the whole package. Um, and then we are, we're also talking about uh, social uh, and economic marginalization of the community. So uh, we're talking 240 tons of silver per year, uh, which is uh, one of the most productive silver mines in the world, the seventh. Uh, and at the same time, the community around the mine is one of the the poorest in in the, in the country, so no no roads, no hospitals. Um, the school is the same one that was built by the French in the 30s. Uh, women have to travel hours to give birth or get basic treatment, uh, and they're not even giving the uh, people from employment in the mine. Uh, not even one job. They have like uh, I can't remember the, the percentage, but it's around. I think yeah, I think it's, was it thirteen percent? Yeah, it's very minor, uh, and this is part of the politics. We have a mine in a certain community, where the workers in the mine can't be from that community because if they go on strike, then you have the community uh, in protest plus the the miners on strike. That means that the whole mine is shut down. But if you bring workers from other places and pit them against the locals, uh, then um, and the locals are against the mine, then that makes it more complicated to actually shut down the the, the mine and uh, effectively protest or conduct direct action against uh, these mining activities. Wow. And so basically, I... 40 people climbed to the top and cut off the water source to this mine to eventually make change. Is that correct? Uh, not 40 people. Um, we're talking in the thousands. Uh, okay. Um, it, 
the, it's pretty much uh, the entire community that was that stood up to to the mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people who live in the camp are have are have a special responsibility of guarding the the valve, mm-hmm. but. Um, it's a grassroots movement, so yeah. it, uh, people there are people who live in the village and who go to work or go to school, mm-hmm. um, and who don't necessarily live in the camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not the, they're not in the protest camp, but they are. They'll go up every Sunday, or if they live further away, they'll come up. They'll come on the holidays. Like students would come on the weekends, or they'd come on holidays, mm-hmm. and they would they would uh, attend the general assemblies or. Uh, they would march, so they would go to the protests. So um, even if the camp, there is a stable of four, about 40 people who live in the camp uh, on any given day, uh, the, 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 the supporters of the movement, it's, it's a much larger movement than just the people who live in the camp. Okay. And so they succeeded in, basically the mine is now shut, is that correct? Uh, no, they, uh, so the, the, the first two years when they shut the, 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 the water pipeline to the mine, mm-hmm. the mine saw about a 40, 50% decline uh, in production. Um, but there were th- they basically were able to shut down, there's three, three um, wells that the, mm-hmm. that the mine extracts water from. They were able to shut down two. Uh, when they tried to shut down the third, um, the the state sent um, military gendarmes and helicopter, and they they decided to take a step back. Yeah. And they're a nonviolent movement. So mm-hmm. out of three pipelines, one, two were shut down. One continued functioning. So this meant, uh, like I said, about a 40, 50 percent decline in production in the first two years. Mm-hmm. And the state, instead of responding to their demands, um, they built another pipeline to a different community further away and brought water to the mine to make up for the two pipelines that were shut down uh, locally. But the quality of the water they were bringing from further away, the minerals in it um, compromised the quality of the silver. Depends on what kind of water, what kind of minerals in the water. And the one that's in the uh, well, one, there's more water in the uh, in the aquifers where Imidre is, so the, the, the volume of water is much stronger for the purification process because that's what they needed for, for the purification process and the quality of the water is is uh, is much better uh, and it costs less because um, yeah. it's coming from a from a hilltop instead of coming from a plane uh, from a different so it costs less in terms of how much uh, gas you need to pump for water mm-hmm. uh, um, and it's closer so it, it, it just uh, yeah. from a capitalistic perspective it's more ideal so they um, they even so they kind of left it like that as a stalemate and um, it stayed that way for for eight years uh, pretty much where they're not giving the, the state is not giving in and the, the protesters are not giving in and the state they have time is on their side and not they have all the resources to play with time and get, eventually get tired uh, of living in the very difficult conditions in the protest camp but there's no water there's no uh, electricity so um, that's that's the game they play so okay the, the protest camp versus the village no, so Imedra is a commune of seven villages, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's the village, you know, the normal daily life in the village, yeah. and the protest camp is not, uh, it's, 
it's something that came out of the, of the movement. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Just to yeah. keep it occupied. Yeah. And it looks kind of like a village because yeah. after the first year of having a tent mm-hmm. as a pro- in the protest camp, it just made sense after the first winter where there was snow and cold that they would actually build uh, exactly. adobe and stone uh, cabins uh, so that they could stay there in the lo- for the long term. And they've been there since 2011, is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because in 2011, that's when the, the effects of having no water were really, like their agriculture, they had no agriculture, basically what was sustaining their life yeah, yeah. was gone. I mean, the, the, the effects were no were noticeable uh-huh. way before, uh, but 2011 was just the, the point where people were just fed up. They yeah. tried, they tried um, changing things through elections, through petitions, through uh, letters to the ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at one point, you just say, of course, uh, whenever we elect someone, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So let's just take things into our own hands and, and, and close this, this pipeline and save our, our water. Because, I mean, in addition to the cyanide in the water, they're all they're almond trees and their agriculture was just nothing, right? It was just barren fields. And today, since they've protested, they have their agriculture back. Is that right? Um, I remember just from 2015, which is the first time I went up to to the camp until today. Um, there's a noticeable difference in the surface area that the oasis uh, takes up. You, there's it's it's very obvious. You can measure it actually. That if you calculate uh, 26. Uh, liters uh, per second that go into the mine from that pipeline they shut down mm-hmm. and you multiply that by 60 by 60 again and so on until you until you get to eight years mm-hmm. then you, you you were talking almost four million cubic tons of water uh, that have been saved uh, so that's quite significant and the silver that's being mined it's being exported, or is it being used within Morocco? No, it's export. It's, it's export. export. Yeah. yeah. Okay, just a quick time out, because if you're keen to explore Morocco, let me tell you about SunTrails, a private tour operator based in Marrakech. I've had the pleasure of being both a paying customer on a holiday through the south of Morocco, but also just traveling with Chris, because he is a friend after all. That aside, Chris is genuinely passionate about discovering the hidden gems dotting the country and meeting people like architects and musicians undertaking interesting initiatives. He then puts all of this together in an itinerary for guests who are looking for more than just a standard tour of Morocco. He's been on the podcast twice, so if you want to find out more, check out episode 1 and episode 19, or get in touch with me via mandyandmorocco.com and I'll happily put you in touch. Before the movement started, there was a Canadian company that was exploring uh, uh-huh. the, the the region there uh, because it's very rich in, in minerals: gold, silver, uranium. You have all sorts of, of uh, precious minerals there. And then when the movement started, uh, they uh, they backed down. They so this yeah. this is another victory for the movement that they they managed just by protesting one mine, uh, preventing another mine Further. from from existing. Wow. And so when you premiered it in Toronto, what was the reaction? People who, who drew the link between Canadian mining and uh, indigenous communities in uh-huh. Canada with, exactly. with this mine. So I, this is why I was, I was uh, particularly happy that it was uh, screened in Toronto for this reason. Uh, I actually managed to attend a protest, uh, an anti-mining protest in Toronto 
that was around the same time. So I was mm-hmm. I was able to bring some people from the protest to to, to, to watch Amazing. the film. Amazing. So that was it was super interesting to watch the film last night. And, um, particularly because we see a lot of protests going on at the moment with like climate change, Brexit, women's rights. So I'm just wondering the way in which the, the villagers of Imadir came together, what can we learn from their protest and apply to other protests around the world? I think it's the form that their, their, their protest movement uh, takes, their fo- the form of organizing. Uh, one, a form of organizing that's based on indigenous uh, principles, not necessarily, I mean, I'm talking about um, regions in in what we call the global south, where we often find inspiration in European political philosophy Mm -hmm. uh, or forms of organizing like political political parties, etc. But I think that if we try to find some sort of um, historic basis or try to look in our own histories, we'll often find that there is a, a democratic tradition. Um, uh, it might not be a, a perfect one, but it's it's there, and we can draw from it and develop it and, and think about how we can apply it to our current struggles. And I think that uh, this is something that's exemplary about this movement, is that they, they drew from uh, uh, a pre-colonial democratic tradition, revived it, and improved it. Because before, it, it was often men who were in these agrao, these general assemblies, um, that took decisions uh, through a direct democracy. Um, and... Uh, improved it by uh, well there's women there's children there's everyone everyone mm-hmm. can, can can participate yeah so this is um, this is, I think is quite exemplary um, and I, peacefully too right like there was no violence no um, yeah. involved in this protest was there not, uh, besides that they they're, they're not uh, a violent movement no. whatsoever uh-huh. um, and another thing that we can learn from there is the horizontal form of organizing where um, a consensus-based form of organizing, um, using direct action as a lever against a powerful institution, mutual aids, uh, like for example, people who uh, people will uh, take a part of their uh, harvest every year and set it aside for the movement to sell it, uh, so that they, the movement has so this kind of financial. Uh, yeah. Oh, how interesting! And so. You took a collaborative approach to telling the story of Amusu, and really you engaged the locals. I didn't find a lot about the protest online in like international newspapers, so I'm just wondering how did you um, how did you find out about the story, and then once you decided to get involved, what was the community's reaction to to having you film it? Well, I had already been involved with the movement for about a year before I started filming um, as an activist. Uh, So um, they knew me before I even even thought of picking up a camera. Um, I would uh, help them by translating, for example, um, press releases into English or um, with some graphic design, devising them on, on um, online uh, digital campaigns, uh, things like that. Uh, and then 
uh, I started to think about maybe, you know, how, how come there wasn't anything done about this movement? There was no film, there was nothing to document it besides uh, what journalists had done uh, before. And, uh, and I thought the journalists um, didn't do enough. Uh, they, they were, the, there's a lot missing in what, uh, what, in the work that, you know, journalists are often so obsessed with information and statistics and uh, objectivity that they kind of miss a lot of uh, very essential things. For example, I asked them, had any journalist ever gone down to the Oasis to see what it was like? They said, no, no. So basically all these journalists were coming, they would go to the camp, and then from the camp they would go to the mine and, and interview the, the, the head of the mine, and then they would interview some people from the movement, and that was it. So essentially they, weren't know, they didn't know what people were fighting for, because if, you're not, if you never went to the Oasis and you never saw the almond trees, and you never saw the beauty of that place, then you, you just don't know what these people are fighting for. And then you claim objectivity by trying to show both sides and so on. And I think that you, you can't be objective because it's always, you know, uh, one person has uh, the power of saying, well, those people don't have any scientific studies. Uh, and they put the burden of proof on the protesters who are peasant, a peasant community who don't have the means to conduct these scientific studies to prove whether there is cyanide or how much water was taken. Mm-hmm. So this kind, this kind of journalism is always going to give more power to, to the minds. I also think you did a really good job of like telling the human side of it. To going into the houses and hearing the women speak about, you know, what have we got and meeting with the people who fleeing the, the police and who'd been in prison for it. Right. I mean, and it's just it's the, these kinds of things that journalists might miss. Like, mm-hmm. OK, the dogs, what, what's the role of the dogs in the protest camp? Mm-hmm. Um, these are, uh, for, from a journalistic perspective, or at least from a traditional mainstream journalistic perspective, these are not useful pieces of information. But I think that they kind of complete uh, and help us understand that these people are not um, uh, not just protesters. As you know, you know, there's a certain way of covering yeah. protests, especially in the global south. Uh, and we often miss that they are very much like anyone in the world asking for their basic rights. So seeing them with taking selfies uh, in the film is quite, you know, someone might say, well, why would you put, a, it's, this is a, a protest film, why would you put someone taking a selfie? Uh, no, everybody takes selfies. So yeah. to, a, to create this process of identification where someone in Canada can, can see themselves uh, and laugh and share that moment with, mm-hmm. okay, we're, we also take selfies. Um, this creates, um, this makes it more possible that people say, well, you know, it's not a question of uh, uh, a conflict between a mind and a community. Yeah. It's uh, a community who exactly. wants to live, who wants to live in dignity, and there's some this big giant yeah. that's blocking them from doing that. So I'm I'm not from Toronto. I'm mm. from a rural agricultural area of Ontario, and I could see the community when they when you filmed the festival and they were like having little races up the hill, and they were having like their the springtime festival, I yeah. think it was, yeah. and. Uh, Right now, it's the harvest festivals and it's the springtime fairs and that sort of thing. So I could really see um, 
the community in that way. Like it, it was relatable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. whole goal is to make it, yeah. to make the whole community, not just an individual. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, this is one of the things that I noticed at Hot Docs or in Western forms of documentary f- uh, filmmaking is that mm-hmm. uh, we're often focusing on individual heroes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I mean, it might not be done on purpose or consciously. I think it's just that, that we're, we've just become uh, used to this kind of form of um, where we, we try to take the Hollywood model and apply it to documentary, uh-huh. and you just have to follow a hero throughout the film. This kind of it, it speaks a lot about how we see history or how we see uh, what, how history is being made. And when we follow individuals, we're saying that history is made by um, exceptional uh, in, individuals. Um, Often when you read a textbook, you'll, you'll learn about certain key individuals and uh, you kind of start to understand history as a series of exceptional individuals that made history, but in, in reality, that's not how it works. Um, it's, it's often little, lots of little tiny actions. Yeah. Um, so, um, we sh- so trying to tell a documentary through a community or through ma- many people instead of having one hero is, I think, more reflective of how history is made. Not, It's not a... I think we should switch. Uh, we should have a paradigm switch in, in how we, we, we understand uh, history. Yeah. The film focuses a lot on the villagers, but I don't uh, recall a lot of commentary from officials at the mine. Mm-hmm. Was this on purpose, or was you just couldn't get any response interviews? It's both. It's on purpose, mm-hmm. and even if it wasn't on purpose, and if I, even if I wanted to, um, they wouldn't want to uh, even speak to me. Um, but like I said, it's it's on purpose. So I'll focus on why yeah. it's on purpose because uh, they have t- the television, the state television. They have uh, that. They have all the newspapers. They have um, all. They they have the money to communicate and uh, organize um, social media campaign. They have the means to 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 argue for themselves, and I think they. Uh, the, the government, the Minister of, in, of Interior speaks for them inside parliaments. No one speaks for the community of Imadra inside parliaments. Um, so why would I even give them five, even a second of, of my time to listen to them? I think they, they have enough uh, resources to make themselves heard, and they, they already do. So I'm not interested in what they have to say. And I think we, we, we've already seen this kind of film before. Deny, deny, deny. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they'll to say, oh, I don't want to be filmed anymore. Shut the camera, and then the camera, and then you might hear the, just the audio on, on black for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this kind of film yeah. so many times. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to make the same film as yeah. the people mm-hmm. made before me. So mm-hmm. there's no point of even addressing that. Okay. Yeah. And how hard was it to get funding? Oh, it was very hard. I... Yeah. I I couldn't convince uh, anyone to give me any development funding. Mm-hmm. I couldn't convince anyone to give me any production funding until I was almost done with filming. Uh, so we filmed for about uh, a year and two months without any funding. So just uh, my own my own camera, my own micro- microphones, and the little resources that I that I had. Uh, I went uh, into debt with my landlord for, I didn't pay rent for four <laughs> months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, he sent a, a Subpoena guy 
<laughs> yeah, knock on the yeah. door. Um, but the the visuals were just beautiful, absolutely stunning. It was so nice to see um, the the oasis in bloom again, the all the almond trees blooming in the springtime. It's just absolutely stunning. So it's great that they they stuck to it. But the word agra comes up throughout the film, and can you just tell us what that means? Agro is. Um... I talked earlier about um, indigenous uh, democratic traditions. So for for um, indigenous North Africans, agro is, um, I mean, you can kind of tell from how it's, it's from the word agro, agora, there's a similarity. Um, it's just a general assembly. Uh, it's, it's consensus-based. And it's part of a, a long tradition of, you know, in history, we often uh, we often learn about civilizations. So we often learn about well, there's the Roman civilization, the, the Egyptian civilization, the Arab civilization, Islamic civilization, mm-hmm. etc. And then um, people often uh, will have this sort of pride. You know, we we uh, the Europeans have had the Greeks and the Romans mm-hmm. before us, and then, uh, for us it's the Islamic Empire and the ancient Egyptians. And then I often tell people, well, are you, you know, are you proud that your ancestors were were slaves? Because in the end, who built the palaces in, of Rome and who built the who built the pyramids in Egypt? It was slaves. Um, so what we often miss in history is uh, is this huge amount of people. Um, the vast majority of history was actually outside of these civil, so-called civilizations in these places that we call the, these barbarians. We just, it just we have one word for it, barbarians. Yeah. And this includes the Mongols. And even the Mongols, if you, if you went back to a Mongol back then, he would say, I'm not a Mongol. They didn't have this concept of nationness. Or, and the same thing applies to Amazigh people. They, um, for up until the last um, two centuries ago, they pretty much lived uh, without any states. And this meant they had no uh, central authority. Um, they were often confederations of tribes that were uh, little self-governing tribes that had agrao or igraun, and these were direct democracies. So they would they would send a representative to the confederation, and the representative couldn't take a decision uh, at in the in the confederal uh, assemblies, and they had to go back and tell them this is what they said. What should we? How should we decide? So, and it was actually a bad thing because it would, to be a representative, it's not like politicians today where it's a really great thing and you can have get all your interests back from it. It was a bad thing because it was sort of a burden that everybody had yes. their turn. Everybody, it wasn't by a vote. You know, mm-hmm. it's your, your your family's turn to send someone. Mm-hmm. It's your family's turn to send someone to the. Um, it just meant one uh, one like a hand, civic duty. Yeah, like a civic duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, one hand less, one labor hand, like, like um, for working in the farm or mm-hmm. for managing. Yes. So uh, they needed all the hands possible. So when you had to send somebody, it wasn't necessarily a good thing. Um, and I think this is actually how politics should work, is that it shouldn't be... Uh, in your interest to to be a politician, you should be serving uh, people, and uh, should be some. So agro is this. Um, that, that's that's sort of a, yeah. a summary of what agro is. Any projects on the horizon? Uh, there's so you know I'm one of these people that has like 10 million projects <laughs> in their head, and I just don't know which one uh-huh. 
want to do. And sometimes I try to do about 5 million at the same time and only one will come out. <laughs> so I, I don't know uh, exactly, but I would say... Um, I would say writing about this experience of collective filmmaking um, and um, sort of looking at what 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 were the good things that we did, what were the bad things that we did, what how we could improve it, how it could apply to other places, how other filmmakers could try to replicate it in different places in the world, and sort of trying to build a, a bottom-up model of filmmaking instead of having production companies where you have a producer who controls everything and tells you what to do and is looking at making profit and not actually representing communities how they want to see themselves represented in, in film, like in anything, yeah. like, in a, uh, like any, any domain, I think it's important that we function bottom up and not top down. Yeah, exactly. I did notice that because you, you mentioned that yesterday when you were speaking. Um, what is the um, collective filmmaking? Um, essentially, uh, the producers of the film are the, are the members of the community. Mm-hmm. So, um, if um, they're not only producers, but they're also creators. So we have Agro. Uh, Agro uh, is is the producer of the film. Agro, uh, we also have Igrawan. Uh, Igrawan is the plural for Agro, uh, for writing. Igrawan for montage, um, where the creative process is done collectively as well. So uh, I basically ask people, what, how do you see yourself how, on the screen? How do you see yourself um, in, the, in a film? How would you like to be represented in a film? And then everybody would would make a, a proposition and we would kind of take that proposition and it, just like in any consensus-based pro- process, you find the general, um, a general um, uh, direction mm-hmm. that kind of takes into consideration everybody's propositions. Um, and you'll see in the film, you'll notice that the film is is very much uh, centered around little tiny movements or gestures of daily life. Yeah. And th- these were actually the propositions. So I've, I noticed that all the propositions were little gestures or daily movements that people were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, women would tell me, um, cooking bread for the for the militants. Um, and then uh, a, a, a man would tell me, writing a, a banner um, mm-hmm. or drawing something, you know. Yeah. Girl going to school. Yeah. I liked when she was practicing her English. So yeah, <laughs> and so little little tiny things like like that. But uh, and this goes back. This ties back to how history is being made. Exactly. Little tiny gestures, not through big moments, uh, as we often understand from if you read a history textbook. Absolutely, yeah. So, where can listeners watch or download Amusu? Um, they can not download it yet. Okay. Uh, because it's still touring in festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the best way to follow right now is we, we encourage people to attend collect- collectively in screening. So there's this, uh, there are debates and discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to follow our, our Facebook page where we, we uh, post where the next screenings will be. But we, we're trying to organize them in as many places as, as possible and uh, to make possible for for um, grassroots screening, so people can can just send to us, hey, we want to screen um, your film in our community, and we we be happy to send them the film, and it will be downloadable only in in Africa um, for free online. Uh-huh. Um, 
So that way we can also have some uh, some income from we have a, like working together. Right. We have a south south mm-hmm. politics. Uh, we would like to make it available everywhere, but we also want to be able to continue doing the work that we do. So yeah, we have this tax the north policy. This has been fascinating. Really, it's so interesting to meet you. So thank you for taking the time. I know you very busy over the last weekend. If you're a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilis tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of my favorite things. But don't just take it from me. Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour on its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a C-H. All of our tours are private and bespoke, so we take you only to the places that interest you. But for now, it's time to say see you in two weeks when I'll be back in the studio. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch via my website, mandyandmorocco.com. And if you're a fan of Why Morocco, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Mandy in Morocco so I can be sure to thank you for helping me share my love of Morocco.